We're going to finish up Acts chapter 4 tonight as we continue to walk through the book of Acts. And I want us to look tonight at a mega church at work. The older I get, the more I'm concerned about what we call a successful church. I think it'll take another time and another place to determine what the truly successful and great churches were and are. Sometimes we measure success by programs, but God measures success by prayer. Sometimes churches grow by swapping sheep, but we are called to look for the lost sheep in our community. Sometimes we count numbers, but God counts the heart. And I want us to look tonight at what it's going to take for the church to be the church that God created it to be. And we're going to look at a mega church that had thousands and thousands of members. But folks, if, if all we're going to get is what most churches already have, then we don't need any more of that. First and third, second and fourth attenders, people who come when they feel like it, do what they want to do, live like they want to live, and are not salt and light in their community. We don't need any more of that kind of Christianity. We need the kind that is present in the New Testament. Vance Havner said one time, few people want to live where there are no churches, but many Christians live as though there were no churches. And what we take for granted, we do not take seriously. If we take the work of God and the things of God and the ministry of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Word for granted, then we will not take it seriously. And this is a church that took the Word seriously. They had a power that most churches don't know anything about. There was a presence that was in that church and with those people that most churches cannot even begin to identify with. And we, we read the book of Acts and we see a church that is so foreign from what the church in America is today, we don't even recognize it. Someone asked Billy Graham if he was trying to take the church back a hundred years, and he said, no, I'm trying to take it back 2,000 years. I'm trying to take it back to the first century. Now, there's a word that appears over and over in the book of Acts, and I want you to kind of trace it with me. It's the word great. Now, we sometimes say something's great. This is a, a great church, or that was a great event, or it was a great concert, or he's a great preacher, or they're a great communicator, or, or we have a great Sunday school class. But I want us to look just briefly before we get into these things tonight about what the Scripture calls great. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. We're going to go all the way through chapter 17. I'm not going to pull everything out, but I'm going to pull about five or six out. Because when you read the book of Acts, you will find that God does not measure greatness by buildings and by programs. God measures greatness in another way. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. Great power and abundant grace, which by the way, that word abundant is the same word as great. Great power and great grace was upon them. So the test of a church is, does that church have great power and great grace? In chapter 5 in verse 6, when God struck Ananias dead, there was great 
fear, great reverence for God. They realized that the things of God were holy and they didn't treat them lightly and flippantly. But there was a reverence for God that came over that church. God wanted that church to understand that He takes sin seriously. And so there was great fear that came over them. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. Acts 6 and verse 8. Great wonders through Stephen. Now Stephen was a deacon. I've been in enough churches to know that there are a lot of deacons, the churches that are deacon-possessed. Now we don't have that problem here. Okay, so all the deacons can take a sigh of relief. We don't have that problem here. But you've been in those churches. You know, the deacon board runs the church, and, you know, the, they do everything except what the New Testament says they're supposed to do. If you went in the average church and asked their deacons, what are you doing for widows? They'd say, well, I don't know, go ask the preacher. But that is an assignment from God in the book of Acts for deacons to minister and to deal with murmuring. You know, nobody wants to deal with murmuring, but that's the job of the deacons. And, and because Stephen was a man full of faith, full of wisdom, and full of the Spirit, there were great wonders performed through him. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Great persecution began to come against the church. Now, when there are great wonders, mark it down, there will be great persecution because it is going against the status quo. It is going against business as usual. And there was great persecution, Acts 15 and verse 3. Acts 15 and verse 3. Acts 15, 3 talks about great joy to all the brethren. <laughs> I, I looked at that one and I thought, boy, I've been in some churches where the last word I would have thought would have been joy. You know, funeral visitation, but not joy. The very thing that God imparted to us, the joy through the Holy Spirit, most churches seem to lack. We come in and look, we look like we're defeated and discouraged and we, we act like we have no power above what the world has. And yet here was a church in the midst of great persecution, in the midst of pressure, that had great joy. And one of the characteristics of a church that God is working in is there's joy. There's joy in the fellowship. There's joy in the conversation. There's joy in what's going on in the life of that church. There's celebration over people being saved and lives being changed and homes put together. We don't just say, well, that's nice and move on. We rejoice in those things. And then in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. Acts 17 and verse 11. Great eagerness when they heard the Word. Great eagerness when they heard the Word. Now, Mark and I have been together long enough that in quiet, you can understand what I'm about to say. Next week, we're going to have people who are going to show up because they want to hear this concert. They just can't wait. Now, if you said to them, uh, by the way, next Sunday night, we're going to have preaching. Well, I, you know, y'all not going to do a big show? Oh, well, I'm not interested. You see, there's those who want to be entertained 
And then there's those who want to come because their hunger for the Word has led them to a hunger to worship. There's a difference. There will be some here that will come simply for the entertainment value of the evening. They'll want to come and sit and listen and tap their feet and say, that was nice, that was good, and then they'll leave and nothing changes in them. But then there are those of us who have a hunger for the Word of God that the hunger for the Word of God leads us to have a hunger to come and participate in a worship experience that's not y'all performing, we watch, but we embrace what you're doing. Does that make a sense? That's a little bit of difference, isn't it? This church had a great eagerness for the Word of God. Now this church was a divine institution, and that's what the church is. It's established by God through the Holy Spirit. He set up the church. But it's also a human institution, the scripture that you saw earlier. They met the needs of people. Some Christians are too holy and too heavenly minded to be of earthly good. And they need to go out and get their sponge wrung out and get in the world and meet some needs and touch some people and, and see what's going on in society and care about the hurts and needs of people. There are way too many of us in the church who are like those who pass by on the other side and very few good Samaritans. Let somebody else do it. We'll pay somebody to do that. But that's not the business of the church. The business of the church is to be God's instrument in society to be salt and light and to make a difference. And that means three things. First of all, that means that we preach salvation in no other name but Jesus. Secondly, it means we help people to understand sanctification, being more and more like Jesus. And thirdly, it means that because we've been saved and because we are in the process of being sanctified, we serve. And our service is not to be saved. Our service is a result of the fact that we have been saved. And God has changed our lives, and so by doing that, we are willing to serve. Some of our students went down this past week and worked in Camilla to help folks that were dealing with recovering from the tornado. And we have people in SOS who go out and minister in the community and cut grass and help people in their houses and help people move and other things. Why? Because that's the church acting like the church. We're not the church acting like the church when we're just in here. We have to be the church acting like the church when we go out of the church so that people can tell that we do it because we have a love for people. Not because we get anything out of it, not because anybody writes up a story about us, but we do it because it's right to do, because it's like Jesus to do that. Now, this all started in a prayer meeting in verse 31. And when they had prayed, remember while they were praying, there was opposition. And opposition is always an opportunity for prayer. You remember what Ron Dunn said, anything that makes you pray is a blessing. And so opposition becomes an opportunity for prayer and suffering's a platform for seeking God. That's what they're doing. They're seeking God in the midst of this situation and their first reaction to a crisis is to pray. I've told you this story before, but you'd heard the story about the lady who was in a business meeting and they were talking and they were fussing and somebody stood up in the business meeting and said, brothers and sisters, I think we need to pray. And she stood up and she said, oh Lord, has it come to that? Yes, that's the first thing we ought to do. When there's a crisis, when there's a need, when there's oppression, when there's persecution, we go to God in prayer. And they went to God, they didn't panic. They didn't try to change the laws. They didn't call their congressman. 
They just prayed. And the place was shaken. Now, Lord, take note of their threats, verse 29, and grant your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Now, the word Lord in verse 29 is different from the word Lord in verse 24. In verse 24, it's despot. We talked about that last week. Dictator, ruler, absolute ruler. In verse 29, it's curios, Lord or master. It's personal. Now, Lord, our Lord, our supreme authority, you take note of their threats. We've been threatened. Look upon their threats. Look at what they're trying to do, Lord. They're trying to stop what you started. They're trying to hinder the gospel. They're trying to stop the spread of good news. Lord, you take note. You see what they're saying. You see what they're doing. And Lord, grant us boldness. And so what did God do? First of all, God shook the place. God shook the place. In the early days of the developing church, sometimes the miraculous was used by God in the spiritual realm. Now, for instance, in chapter 3, there are three symbols. There's wind, and there's fire, and they heard in their own languages. Now, the place is shaken in Acts chapter 4. And God is going to answer and use their witness and not only shake the place where they are, but literally, when you think about it, from that point on, for the next 200 years, Christianity began to shake the entire Roman Empire. Nothing was the same after that day. Now, it began at Pentecost. But when the persecution began and they prayed for boldness, at that point God shook the place and they began to shake every place they went. One thing you know when you read the book of Acts, wherever the Christians went and wherever they shared the gospel, nothing stayed the same. They were either run out of town or beaten, threatened, thrown in jail, but nothing stayed the same. When God's Spirit shakes a church, nothing stays the same. Not in it and not outside of it. Now, this is going to happen later when Paul and Silas are in jail and an earthquake is going to shake the place and they're going to have an opportunity to share the gospel. You know, there's nothing wrong with most of our churches in America that a good shaking wouldn't take care of. By the way, I've been in services where I've seen God do some rumbling and some shaking and most people didn't know it was happening. I think the Baptist... Mark, you need to write a song. The Baptist national anthem needs to be the words of Jacob. Surely the Lord was in this place and we did not know it. There's got to be a song in there somewhere. And isn't that true? I mean, some people, the only time they're shaking is when their wife nudges them and says, Honey, the service is over. You can wake up. We can go home now. But there was a shaking in this place. And when God comes down on a place, there is a shaking that takes place. There is, in a sense, an atmospheric revival. I'm not trying to be too mystical here, but when God shakes a place, there's a sense that when you go by that place, you know something's different. When you walk on the grounds, you know something's different. You, when, you, when you get around the people, you know something is different when God shakes a place. Secondly, they were filled with the Spirit. Now what's interesting here, if you look back at this passage in Acts chapter 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. They were filled with the Spirit. Now that's the only time 
that the filling of the Spirit is mentioned in the rest of the chapter. And all of this is a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They had been filled in Acts chapter 2, now they're filled again. Why? Because you can't minister on yesterday's filling. What God did for you today is not adequate for what you need for tomorrow. You need a continual filling of the Holy Spirit to be able to minister in His name. And listen, when you want what God wants, God will give you what He wants. They prayed. The place was shaken. And they were filled with the Spirit. Now at Pentecost, there was the first great outpouring of the Spirit. Now this is the second one. In both of those outpourings, God gave physical evidence of His power. In both of them, He gave the fullness of the Spirit. And in both of them, He empowered them to witness. The filling of the Spirit is the Spirit that empowers us to witness, that empowers us to share good news, that makes normally timid people bold enough to share their faith, that makes people that don't have the gift of evangelism bold enough to speak a good word in the name of Christ. You don't have to have the gift of evangelism to share your faith. You just have to be filled with the Spirit to do it. Because if you try to do it and you're not filled with the Spirit, you'll fail. But if you do it when you're filled with the Spirit, it doesn't matter whether the person responds or not. You've been obedient to what God's told you to do. And so the place was shaken and they were filled. Now remember what we talked about this morning. He's the Spirit of truth. All right, let me give you a little formula here. Spirit without truth is wildfire. And we have churches that have a lot of spirit and don't have much truth. And that's wildfire. Truth without spirit is no fire. And there are a lot of churches that focus so much on truth that they don't ever talk about the Spirit. They don't ever bring that into the realm of their teaching. It's all about just, we want to know the truth. And they just go line by line, precept by precept, and never say that that truth has to be blessed and used by the Spirit of God in their lives. But the Spirit and truth is God's fire. Now, we don't need wildfire. We certainly don't want no fire. Well, what we need is fire from God, and that comes from the filling of the Spirit. And if you'll look at the text, it says all were filled. Now that would mean the 120 that were in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, the 3,000 in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and the 4,000 in Acts chapter 3. So we're, we're up now to seven or 8,000 people, and it says they all were filled. All. What does the word all mean to you? All. Why were they all filled? They were all praying, and they were all seeking, and they were all filled. Why are members of churches not walking in the fullness of the Spirit? Because they're not praying and they're not seeking. They're not really wanting to go any further in their walk with God. But these were all filled. Now you imagine, just think, boy, if, if you want to have a pastor just get a grin on his face. Just think about 8,000 people all filled with the Spirit. Let me ask you something. Do you think if this week, just this week, 8,000 believers in Albany, Georgia lived and acted 
and reacted in the fullness of the Spirit. Do you think that anybody in Albany would notice that? This way means yes, and this way. They would, wouldn't they? Well, what if the five, six hundred of us did that? You see, we can't do anything about anybody that's not here, but we can do something about us. They were all filled. Now, that means that my responsibility is to allow the Holy Spirit of God to communicate through me. It's not my job or your job to convince you that you need to be saved. It's my job to be available, to be used by the Spirit so that you'll see a difference in me and want what I've got. See, I'm not the saver. Jesus is the one who saves. I'm just the seed sower. And sometimes that seed falls on fertile ground and we reap a harvest. Thirdly, they spoke the word with boldness. They spoke the word with boldness. Now, there are some folks that think if you're filled with the Spirit, you don't have to worry about doctrine. You know, I, don't, I don't have to think about doctrine, but yet if the word is Spirit-breathed, then to walk in the power of the Spirit, I cannot ignore doctrine. I need to understand the sovereignty of God. I need to understand grace. I need to understand justification by faith. I need to understand the blood atonement. I need to understand what Christ has done for me. And so the filling of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you go over here and take doctrine and put it to the side for the theologians and the PhDs. The filling of the Holy Spirit means I want to know everything the Holy Spirit has said that I need to learn and I can't be indifferent to doctrine because God will not empower ignorance when we have the ability to learn all we have to learn. I get real intimidated when I'm around some people. I, I never like to get in a theological discussion with Warren Wiersbe. Because he'll say something, well, you know what it says in Leviticus, and I go, oh yeah. Yeah, I remember that verse. I was using it in my quiet time this morning. <laughs> but here's a man who has saturated his mind with the Word of God. And if you've ever watched those series on the conversations with the giants, with Lehman Strauss and with Warren Wiersbe and others, I could just throw out a word. I'd say justification. And they'd go into five, seven minutes explaining what justification is and giving scriptural references to it. And you just sit there and say, wow, that's... But you know what? Their Bible is no different than yours or mine. It's just they choose to look at it and study it and dig in it a little deeper than we do. And you say, well, they've got time to do that. I understand that, but, you know, if we want to understand how God can use us, we need to be readers of the Scripture and read the truth and find out what God has to say to us. And these people were spirit-filled and they spoke the word with boldness and there was no one who could deny that the power of God was on them. Number four, they had all things in common, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now the word heart obviously has to do with the wellspring of life. Our, what makes us who we are. But he says they were one heart. Now, that doesn't mean that they all carried the same Bible. 
That doesn't mean that they all dressed alike and looked alike and liked the same teams and, and liked the same food and went to the same places and all went by the same little list of rules. That's legalism. One heart means that the differences didn't get between them. They were of one heart in that they let the minors be minors and the majors be majors. Our problem is we begin to emphasize the minors and we de-emphasize the majors. They were of one heart in that they just looked at each other and said, you know, I wouldn't do that, but, you know, if you're not violating Scripture and if you're not violating conscience and if you're not causing, uh, being a stumbling block to somebody, God bless you. We, we get hung up on externals. You, you know, our nasty nine and our filthy five and our dirty dozen. And, you know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. And, and it, well, neither does a telephone pole. And we get hung up on that kind of stuff. You know, what, you know did, did you do this and did you do that? Listen, folks, being of one heart means that they believed in one another, they loved one another, they supported one another, they encouraged one another, they gave of themselves to one another. They were all on the same page as far as their heart, their passion. Dr. Watley said earlier, we're not in competition. And folks, we're not in competition with other churches. We're supposed to all be doing the same thing. And the last time I checked, if there's 16,700 students in the Darty County school system, there are not 16,700 students in churches in Albany, Georgia on Sunday morning. So that means we all have work to do. That means that next Sunday, every church in Albany, Georgia could have 500 new children and students, and we still wouldn't reach them all. So we have to be of one heart. We have to join arms, and we have to join hearts, and we have to say, what can we do to make a difference? And this church joined hearts together, and, and they had a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. Bishop Westcott said, external visible unity is not required for the invisible unity of the church. Here's a great quote by A.W. Tozer. I think it's going to come up on your screen. A.W. Tozer said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart closer to each other than they could ever be if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. What Tozer is saying there is, is we have one thing by which we tune our lives, not one another, not another church. But if we tune our lives to be in harmony with Christ, then we are closer to unity than if all we talk about is unity. We can talk about unity and nod our heads in agreement and not have unity. But if we are in unity with Christ, then there is true unity. Now, how did this unity show itself? First of all, it showed itself in boldness. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9. We're going to look through Acts chapter 9, and I want you to see how often this boldness has to do with speaking. 
speaking the word and speaking the truth. Acts 9 and verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of our Lord. So, he's speaking boldly in Acts chapter 9. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. This boldness is always tied to being ready to give a witness. Acts 13 and verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Turn a page to Acts 14 and verse 3. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of His grace. Acts 18. Acts 18 and verse 26. Acts 18 and verse 26. And He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Turn a page to Acts 19 and verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, somewhere in those boldly statements, write this little phrase. Fullness and boldness are first cousins. Fullness and boldness are first cousins. They're related. Now, if I don't have fullness and I get bold, people will end up talking about me or my church. But if I have fullness and I'm bold in fullness, then people will talk about Jesus. See, the purpose of boldness is not so people will talk about us. The purpose of boldness is so people will talk about Jesus and see the difference that Jesus makes in people's lives. So fullness and boldness are related here to one another, and you have to step out in boldness when you're full of the Spirit. You step out in boldness, and you take that step of faith to do what God's told you to do. And sometimes you wonder, oh man, how are they going to respond to me? Don't worry about that. You see, the waters of the Jordan River didn't part until they put their feet in them. Peter didn't walk on water by staying in the boat. He got out of the boat and he walked on water. The 3,000 at Pentecost weren't saved by the wind and the fire. They were saved because of the boldness of the message that Peter preached. There's boldness and then there's giving. Now, I know you think, what in the world is he doing in a mega church? Well, that's what they did. I can't help it. It's in the text. I can't take it out. This is not communism. Communism says what's yours belongs to everybody. Christianity says what is mine is yours. All the church had happened to them was they got a new attitude about their stuff. We just took a lot of stuff and had a yard sale. For the life of me, I can't tell you most of what we sold. But boy, it was important when I got it. Had to have it. Pull out the card, buy it, get it, take it home. 
How did I get this? It's not new anymore, so you've got to go buy something else. What happened in this church is they got a new attitude about stuff and things. And they changed their perspective and they said, you know, there are great needs and we need to be about the business of meeting needs. By the way, just a thought. If every Christian in America tithed, this is just a thought, if every Christian in America tithed, the federal government would not have to be in the welfare business and in the needs meeting business because the church could do what God created the church to do, and that's to meet the needs of people. But we have to depend on the government because the church is disobedient to what God's called us to do. And so people come and ask for help, and we have to send them to the government. Why? Because we don't have the resources. Why don't we have the resources? Because the church is not obedient to what God's called us to do. And if we want to be the church that Jesus has called us to do, then we have to have the right heart. And the right heart means that there's an attitude of giving. Philippians 2 says Jesus emptied himself. He gave himself up. And every one of us approaches God and approaches the Word with either a clenched fist or an open hand. Every time there's an appeal, every time there's a need, we either come to God with clenched fists holding on to what's ours, and Corey Ten Boom said, you better be careful how tight you hold on because it hurts when God pries it loose. Or we come to God with open hands. Say, Lord, whatever you've given me is available for you to use. One of the greatest joys I ever had in my life when we were making nothing. Our first full-time church and I mean, at that time, we were just, I mean, we were just barely scraping by. And one day while I was praying, I had a young guy in our youth group, and he is now in charge of all media for the Oklahoma Baptist Convention, but he was in the eighth grade, and this, there's a great story about this guy. Uh, he brought this little chubby guy to church with him one night. And this little chubby guy that he brought to church with him one night was fascinated by Ray because Ray could play his guitar behind his head. He could put his guitar behind his head and he could play I'm a C. I'm a C-H, I'm a C-H-R-S-T-I-N. And he could play it and he could play it real fast. And so this little chubby guy was fascinated by that. You want to know who the little chubby guy was? His name was Garth Brooks. And Ray taught Garth Brooks to play the guitar. Garth Brooks grew up right down the street from Ray. Well, that's another story, but... Ray's mom was a hairdresser. They had very little money. His dad was an alcoholic. And Ray was just one of those kids that you just immediately liked. He's just a great kid. And I was doing a discipleship group with him one time when he was in the eighth grade, and he made a statement. He said, you know, he said, I'm hoping that I can save up enough money to get a desk so that when I come home in the afternoon, I can have my quiet time at a desk. He just wanted a little desk in his room to have a quiet time. And the Lord immediately said to me, you've got a desk. And my first thought was, Lord, my parents gave me that desk when I was a little kid. My mother is not going to be happy. And God said, I don't care. I'll take care of your mother. You give him the desk. And so I got a friend, and we got a truck, 
And after school one afternoon, we drove up to Ray's house, and I said, Ray, here's your desk. It's one of the most joyous spiritual experiences I've ever had. To see the face of an eighth grade boy who had very little and think that somebody loved him enough to say, I've got something that I can give to you. That's what it's about. It's about looking for the opportunities that God gives us to invest in other people, to make a difference in their life, to encourage them in ways, and to do things for them that, you know what, they can't pay you back for it. They can't come back and say, well, what can I give you? But it's giving with no strings attached. And the example here is Barnabas, Joseph. In fact, the church, he was so full of the Spirit that people began to call him by his gift. Encouragement. And every time you see Barnabas in the Scripture, he's encouraging somebody. Paul gets saved. Barnabas brings him before the church at Jerusalem and vouches for him and says, you know, you can trust this guy. I stand for him. I, I'm standing with him. I believe he's had a genuine conversion experience. Paul and Barnabas part ways because Paul doesn't believe that John Mark is salvageable for ministry. And Barnabas takes John Mark and he puts him under his wing. And we don't really know what Barnabas did, but we do know this in the last letter that Paul wrote before he was killed. He said, bring to me my cloak and the parchments and on your way, bring John Mark, for he is useful to me for ministry. And the word that is used there is the same word found in the book of Acts about the job that John Mark had failed at before. And because Barnabas took John Mark under his wing and he encouraged him and he mentored him and he discipled him and he taught him and he helped him, John Mark once again became useful to Paul. And Paul said, you know, here I am at the end of my days and if there's anybody I'd like to see right now, it's John Mark. That's a giving spirit. That's an encouraging spirit. That's somebody who came and stood because you see a great church is not about buildings, it's about great people. Ray Stedman said, counterfeit Christianity can be recognized externally as a kind of religious club where people largely of the same social status or class are bound together by a mutual interest in some religious project or program meet together to advance that particular cause. But that is a far cry from true Christianity, which consists of individuals who share the same divine life, who are made up of all ages, backgrounds, classes, and status levels of society, and who, when meeting together, regard themselves as what they really are, brothers and sisters in one family. But of that mutual background of love and fellowship, they manifest the life of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we're, by the people that keep records of this kind of stuff, we're a mega church, whatever that means. We're in the top 2% of churches in America in size. But that's not what's important. What's important is, are we great in God's eyes. 
Not are we great on some statistical chart that somebody keeps somewhere. But when God looks at us, and He looks at our hunger for the Spirit, and our hunger for the Word, and our willingness to share, does God look at us and say, that's a great church. And if He doesn't, then whatever we have to do to align ourselves with His standard of greatness, we need to do. And we don't need to hesitate in doing it. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed?